now that we've seen in full bloom the disastrous effects of sin, now that we've carefully considered the oracles against the serpent, against the woman, and against the man, now, now we are equipped to consider one of the most significant issues in all of God's revelation when it comes to our relationship with our Creator, that being the concept of grace. Grace has been defined in, in various ways. The most simple definition I can think of is unmerited favor. But it's also being, has been defined with the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And I like that one because it lets us know that a price had to be paid for us to have God's riches. It's also been defined as all that God is free to do for man on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. All of these definitions have merit. But here's the bottom line. Before we can ever fully appreciate God's grace directed toward us as individuals, we must apprehend these two truths, at least this to a minimum, these two truths. First, we don't deserve it. That's the first thing we have to apprehend if we're going to really appreciate grace. We don't deserve grace. By definition, you don't deserve grace, and neither do I. And secondly, Someone had to pay for it, and that someone was not us. It wasn't you, and it wasn't me. We don't deserve it, and someone had to pay for it. If we don't fully buy into these two truths, we will be permanently, permanently stuck in the mud when it comes to our experiential relationship with God. Oh, we may know a whole lot about Him, but we'll be stuck in the mud when it comes to our experiential relationship with Christ. For you see, God is perfectly holy, and he cannot just look the other way at sin. A price would have to be paid if fellowship was to be restored, and that price was way beyond the ability of either Adam or Eve to pay, and it's way beyond our ability as well. If Adam and Eve were to have eternal fellowship with the one that created them post-sin in a post-sin world, God himself would have to pay the price. One of the things that makes postmodernism so destructive, in my view, is that it removes absolutes. Morality becomes a sliding scale. What's right for me may be wrong for you and vice versa. Moral relativity makes perfect holiness almost impossible to comprehend. But with God, morality is not a sliding scale. His standards are absolute, and either we abide by them or we don't. There's really no middle ground. Either we abide by God's absolute standards, or we don't abide by God's absolute standards. Actually, I'm not so sure that postmodernism and moral relativism are really all that modern. They had it down pretty well in the days of the judges, didn't they? Remember the phrase that haunts the, 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 the judges? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So maybe postmodernism isn't so modern after all, or even postmodern. It's been around a long time. God had promised that the moment, the very moment that Adam and Eve ate, that they would die immediately with regard to the relationship they had with their Creator. And immediately they did 
die. Mot tamut. Dying, you will die. But translated more accurately, you will surely die. Mot tamut. It's an absolute certainty. You eat, you're going to die. Why? Because God is absolutely holy and He can't just look the other way at sin. Sin has to carry with it consequences. And we have studied that over the last several weeks. They did begin to die immediately physically. The moment they ate, the, the, the nanosecond they ate, they began the dying process physically. And the nanosecond they ate, they died spiritually with regard to their relationship with their Creator. For you see, death is essentially separation. It's essentially separation. Physical death is the separation of the immaterial part of man from the material part. The separation of the immaterial part of man from the material part. And spiritual death is separation from fellowship with God. For Adam and Eve, and for the rest of us, physical death will continue to be a reality. Now, by the time chapter 3 is over, Adam and Eve are saved, to use New Testament terminology. By the time this chapter is over, they are going to heaven when they die. That part of the relationship has been mended, it has been healed, it has been restored, they have been redeemed. But the physical death aspect is going to continue on. Now, for them, it was several hundred years before they died. For us, it's not that long. But the, the physical part would continue. And that's not entirely bad, is it? Now, I, know, I know we fight it. We take, we take medicines to help keep us alive, and we should. I'm not advocating anything other than that. But from a theological point of view, the fact that eventually, eventually we will die is not entirely bad because we live in a body that is corrupted by sin. We live in a body that breaks down a little bit more each year, doesn't it? Perhaps sometimes we think it breaks down a little bit more each week for some of us. But it breaks down a little bit more time after time. It wears down year by year. Frankly, it wouldn't be a positive thing to live forever in this body. That's a positive thing to live forever. But it's not necessarily a positive thing to live, to live forever in this body. Now, I'm not advocating that we speed up the process at all. But, but I'm just saying the reality is because we live in a body of corruption, it's not entirely a bad thing that one of these days we will exit this body. Now, that ought to be the, the choice of the individual, not the choice of the state, not now and not ever. But it is a positive thing, ultimately. Ultimately, it will be a positive thing to live in another body forever. And that body is theologically called, biblically called, the resurrection body. Now, that will be a wonderful thing, because that resurrection body won't be able to feel the same types of pain that we feel here. It won't be able to experience sorrow or tears or even any more death. So it is a positive thing to live forever but it's a positive thing to live in a resurrection body, not in the body we have right now. So while we shouldn't attempt to hasten death, that's God's choice. Suicide is a bad thing. Suicide is the ultimate act of arrogance and pride, self-pride. And it's almost always an act of insanity. Of course, there are, there are suicides for, for noble purposes. We're not talking about that, perhaps in war. But we ought not to hasten our death, but we need to realize that the physical death of the believer is not always not always a bad thing. It's a promotion. Now, that's an important thing for us to remember because at the end of this passage, Adam and Eve are going to be expelled from the garden. And we look at that, that, that may be a negative. That wasn't a negative. It was a positive. They would not be able to eat from the tree of life because they didn't want to live forever in that body of corruption. 
Now this may go against the grids that we all have in our souls, but this is the biblical truth. But what about, what about spiritual death? How could the fellowship, which was broken by sin, be restored? Now, we all know how this happened, but from Adam and Eve's perspective, it has to happen with progressive revelation. How could it be restored? Because God's holiness had to be satisfied, and His holiness is absolute. That's why I made my comment a minute ago about postmodernism and moral, and moral relativism that goes hand-in-hand hand with postmodern, postmodernism. If there's a sliding scale of morality then perhaps maybe in our minds we might think well, we would apply that sliding scale to God. Maybe he has a sliding scale of morality. Well, God's not that way. God has absolutes, and God's holiness is absolute. And if we violate that holiness, then a price has to be paid for that. God's holiness must be satisfied. Last week, we discussed an issue called talionic justice. Italianic justice, if you recall, means the punishment has to fit the crime. Some people also call it the eye for an eye kind of justice. But the punishment must fit the crime. And what this means is that one death would have to be rescued by another. The scriptures tell us that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from our empty manner of life. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the land without spot and without, plem- without blemish. You see, one death had to be rescued by another. That's talionic justice. That's the justice that God demanded. God's holiness had to be satisfied. And gold and silver or anything else that God created wouldn't be enough. That's why it's so absurdly silly when people try to buy their way into heaven. That's why we discourage people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, from giving to, to the Lord's work. If, if I know for sure that a person's an unbeliever, I wouldn't accept their offering. I wouldn't accept their gift. This happened to me many, many years ago when the, when the church first started. And believe me, we were dirt poor, were we not? I mean, our, our rent was like $900 a month, and that was about what our offerings were. It wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot more than that. And then this fellow that I knew who was an executive with, the, well, I say with, with an oil company here in Houston, he came to me and he said that he and several of his friends were looking for a place to dump some money at the end of the year. And he asked if we were one of those 501c3 organizations, whatever the numbers are, I get them confused sometimes. I said, well, let me check. <laughs> I went back, got on the phone real quick, and I said, Don, are we one of those corporations? He said, yeah, I think we are. So I went back in the room and I said, well, yeah, we, we are one of those corporations. We'd be happy to... We'd be happy to accept your offerings, since I knew they were going to be very, very substantial. And I thought, well, wow, this will get us, this will set us up for years. And I said, well, you know, there, there's just one thing I need to ask you. I said, now, are, are you and all your friends believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, well, what's that got to do with anything? So, I just, just feel this. My heart just went all the way down <laughs> past my pelvis and into both of my feet. It just split apart. Half my heart was in one foot, half it was in the other. And he said, well, and so it makes, it makes a big difference because the Lord's work needs to be supported by the Lord's people. And I wouldn't want you thinking that anyone was buying their way to heaven. And so, so if y'all weren't believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we wouldn't, be able to, we wouldn't be able to accept such a gracious offer. And he said, well, you know, I, you know not, and I said, well, that, that kind of tells me what I need to know. And, and now later on, by the way, that man did become a believer. Uh, I, I've told you that story, too. He came into my, I've been praying one day. I've been praying for the opportunity to give the gospel to someone that day. 
the whole day had gone by. It's about six o'clock. Man comes into my office and he said, "Hey, listen, this was before I was in ministry. We, we were just having a casual conversation. In the course of the conversation, this this same man, a few years after the conversation I told you before, says, "What does a guy have to do to be saved anyway? Just out of the blue." Never short sell praying for an opportunity to give someone the gospel. I remember I said, well, uh, believe in Jesus. You know, I was so shocked that God had answered my prayer. I hardly could get the words out. But the point is, the Lord's work has, needs to be supported by the Lord's people. So that's why we don't, we don't encourage unbelievers to give to the ministry. Because I don't want for them for one minute to think that they can purchase, purchase their salvation with gold or silver or other corruptible things that God has created in that way. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't buy your way to heaven. There's only one way it's going to happen is that one death has to purchase another. We, we died spiritually, so the only way that's going to work is somebody had to die for us. Now, we all know who that was. That was Jesus Christ himself. One death would have to be rescued by another death. Since Adam and Eve were already dead spiritually and they were dying physically, they were in no position to offer that sacrifice, just like you aren't and just like I'm not. In a moment of benevolence, in a moment of magnificence, one of us might have jumped up and said, you know, I'll do it. Peter might have jumped up and said, said Lord, I don't want you to die. I'll go to the cross for everyone else. But it wouldn't have worked, would it? You know why? Because Peter was already dead. I mean, he, was already, he, was, he, he couldn't purchase, actually, at the point he was saved, but he, he couldn't have purchased someone else's salvation. Because he was born a fallen creature. He had to be redeemed. He was saved in the Old Testament since by placing his faith and his faith alone in Yahweh to forgive his sins and grant him eternal life. Well, Adam and Eve weren't in any position to do it. And to complicate matters further, all, all of Eve's offspring would be contaminated by the same sin that they had just entered into. So they too would be ineligible, except for one. Except for one. And that was the promised seed of the woman that we considered in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The seed that would ultimately be good and ultimately conquer evil, the seed of the serpent, except for one. And of course, that's Jesus Christ. That's grace, my friends. Because we were not rescued by the death of some unknown angel that lived in some remote part of the universe that had no family that no one would ever miss. In order to purchase our salvation, God did it himself. He sent his son to die for us. And that's grace. You see, grace can turn even life's biggest negatives into positives. That's grace. Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and this morning we conclude this wonderful chapter. Read along with me, if you would, in verses 20 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim 
and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. At first glance, this first verse, verse 20, might seem just a bit out of place. Now, the man called his wife, or called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That might almost seem like it, it was something that was inserted, that it's out of place, but it's not really. It really goes with the flow of the passage quite nicely. Adam, giving the name Eve to the woman, demonstrates that they had accepted their situation in life. They had accepted their situation as fallen human beings living in a fallen world. You see, Eve, actually Eve is from the, the, the Greek term, but the Hebrew term that is translated here, Eve, means life, or, or perhaps living. And the name reflects Adam's faith. For Eve was the mother of all living. There would be a future, after all, for the human race. Even though they would surely die, mot tamud, even though they would surely die, there is going to be a future for the human race through the promised seed of the woman. Just as God has, had said. There would be a future. This is good news. It's great news. So this is not out of place at all. Just by naming her Eve, the mother of all living, and actually the next phrase, because she was the mother of all living, Either Adam had said that, or perhaps Moses, as an editor, added that to explain why he named her Eve. But at any rate, that's why he did it. And it reflected his faith, don't you see? Because he believed the promise that God had given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. So somebody's going to be born. And that somebody's going to be ultimately good. And that somebody's going to conquer those who are ultimately evil, and we've studied that before. Those are those who reject God and rebel against Him. So this is good news. It's incredible news. And in fact, we'll see next week when we begin chapter 4, that there's great confusion over who the seed of the woman was going to be. It looks for the world, like Eve believes, that the seed of the woman is Cain. And wouldn't that make sense to her? Because that was her first offspring, so she would think that that's the seed that's going to be ultimately good and it's going to ultimately conquer evil and take away sin. And we find out very quickly, if you've read ahead, that's not what happens, is it? No, Cain, far from being ultimately good, turns out to be pretty evil himself and pretty rebellious against God himself and is the first murderer, at least the first human murderer. So we see in verse 20, good news. I've often been asking, perhaps you've thought about this too, what was the content of Adam's faith? Now, the text, the text is not real super clear on that here. It's not explicit about it, but I think implicitly it tells us. What was the context of Adam's faith? Well, the bottom line is Adam believed the promise of God. He believed it. He believed that God was going to keep his promise. So he trusted God to keep his promise of deliverance through the seed of the woman. Now that, and that's, that's the, the content that he was given. He trusted the information that he had. That's all they had at that point. And he shows that he trusted God to forgive his sins and to somehow grant him eternal life through this promised seed by naming this, this, uh, the woman, by naming her Eve. Now, he, he did also, in, a, in another way, he, it, by naming her Eve, it does reflect the leadership structure, those uh, throughout the, the, the scriptures, those who have leadership have naming rights, so to speak. 
doesn't look like that God forced this name on, on Adam to Eve. He, he lovingly names her this, expressing his faith. So the na- every time you hear the name Eve from now on, I want you to think victory over death. Because that's what the name Eve signifies. Victory over death. The serpent was instrumental in the downfall of Eve and Adam. And Eve is going to be instrumental in the downfall of the serpent through her seed. That's grace, my friends. We don't earn that. We don't deserve that. In verse 21, we find God acting in grace again, both to care for the needs of Adam and Eve and their new life in a hostile environment, but also to provide a constant reminder of the ramifications of rebellion against the Creator. And this is big. Read again with me in verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Do you remember what Adam and Eve had made garments of in order to clothe themselves right after the fall? Leaves. Yeah, fig leaves, I suppose. Leaves. That was totally inadequate. That's totally inadequate on two levels. One, it's totally inadequate to live in a hostile environment. They're going to need a lot more than that to live in a hostile environment. But it's totally inadequate for another way. And, and it's so symbolic of what mankind has tried to do from the days of Adam and Eve. They were trying to find a way out to their problems themselves. And let me tell you what. Fig leaves are no more a covering for sin than corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life. A futile attempt. Now, at least it shows that they realized that they were in trouble. At least it shows that they knew they had a problem. But it was a futile attempt to solve that problem, wasn't it? Just like so many attempts today are futile attempts. You know some of the attempts that people make. When you say, well, you know, are you a, a Christian? Are you going to go to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so. Well, well, what would give you that hope? Well, my parents were Christians, and they went to church all the time. And when I was little, they took me on occasion as well. Well, that's neat, but that doesn't make you a Christian. So, well, you know what? I joined a church. I go to church every week. Well, as a friend of mine wrote in a kind of a country western Christian song titled, You Can Sit in a Driveway All Day Long and Not Turn Into a Car. You can also attend church every week and not be a believer. That's sad, but true. So, so that doesn't work. Well, I give a lot of money to charities. Well, I'm glad that you do, but you can't. How much money do you have to give to charity to pay the price for sin? There is no amount. You know, I'm just, this is a good one. You going to heaven? Well, I hope so. Well, why do you think so? Well, I'm just trying to be good enough. Wow, that's my offering that I bring God. I'm trying to be good enough. Well, how good do you have to be? How good do you have to be? Let me tell you how good you have to be to satisfy perfect holiness. You've got to be perfectly holy, don't you? I don't know anybody that's done that. Now, I know people, I do know people that think that their sin is no problem. But I don't know anybody that thinks they haven't sinned. Well, actually, there was one. Some of you were there that night. It was a Sunday night. A couple of years ago, a fellow walked into the service. And those of you that know that classroom has a door right by where I'm speaking. that has a door in the back. Some of you remember this day. This fellow walked in to the service. We were talking about David. I remember that. 
And the guy was uh, drunker than Hooter Brown, whoever Hooter Brown was. I don't know. It's one of those things I'm going to have to find out one of these days, the origin of that statement. And he was drunker than Hooter Brown. And he came in and announced to everybody that he was there, and, and there wasn't any place for him to sit, which was kind of uh, uh, uncomfortable because we already had people sitting up at the front, and there was a lot of people there that day. People were already sitting to the sides. And so I forgot how it worked out, but he ended up sitting almost right at my feet. Remember that? A drunk man sitting almost right at my feet while I'm trying to preach about David and grace and all these things. And he, he was really happy to be there. And, and he, and he uh, made a few comments. And, and on the second or the third comment, I, I said to, to one of the men that was sitting on the front row, uh, I, I said, would you please uh, es- escort our friend and, and you know, talk to him outside a little bit. And they, the, the, the couple of gentlemen took him out, and they gave him the gospel, and they gave him some money so that he could get something to eat. And it was, you know, it was a real kind thing. But when it was all over, he had sobered up just a little bit, so they asked me to come in the office and, and talk to him for just a little bit. So I thought, well, I will. You know, I have a captive audience, and sometimes when you're going to give people money, it's a captive audience. It shouldn't work that way, but it does. And, and I sat down with him, and he was still wobbling a little bit. I should have known better, but I started trying to give him the gospel. And he was... It was not really coherent, but I kept on. So, so I kind of I went back, and I said, well, first of all, let's establish this. I want you to know that God loves you, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, that's right. I said, well, good. I said, well, so you would recognize that, that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? He said, nope. I don't recognize it. I said, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> The Bible says everybody, and you know that would include you. I said, there's, there's nothing that you've ever done in the, in the course of your entire life that you would consider in the least bit offensive to God. And he said, nope, never done anything. I said, you just came into a Bible study drunk and interrupted the Bible study. Don't you think that qualifies as maybe something that God wouldn't like? Nope. And I said... I said, well, we'll have, to, we'll have to continue this discussion sometime when you're sober. You know, so, so anyway, I have run into that one person who thought that sin wasn't a problem. But most everybody else uh, realizes that it is. And it is a problem. It does have to be dealt with. And putting fig leaves on is not going to deal with it. And putting a dollar in the plate or ten dollars or a million is not going to deal with it. Michael Corleone didn't deal with it in Godfather Part Three, when he gave all that money to the Roman Catholic Church and thought he was going to absolve himself of all the murders that he had committed. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way in fiction, and it doesn't work that way in real life either. A price had to be paid. Fig leaves wouldn't do it. The clothing of leaves was not only inadequate to protect them from this new hostile environment, but it also symbolized their grossly, grossly inadequate effort to redeem themselves from the dilemma of sin. As one Old Testament writer put it, Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. Now, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In case you missed it, to make a garment of skin means some animals got to die. Don't miss that. That's, that's the major point of this whole passage. Somebody had to die. Now, the garments of skin wouldn't even do it. But, but at least it was a shadow of what was to come. And, and we're kind of immune to that, aren't we? We're immune to the taking of animal life. And 
I, I'm probably going to have some form of meat for lunch, unapologetically. Probably, I'll try to be healthy and have chicken or fish. I can't promise it, but I'll, do, I'll try to do that. And I'm, I'm kind of immune. When I sit down and eat that chicken sandwich or, or that piece of fish, I don't even think about the fact that an animal had to die for me to eat that. I mean, I'm immune to it. Probably never have, except for once or twice when I went hunting and had to clean the animal myself. And that's why I don't go hunting anymore. I don't, really, I don't like that. I've been deer hunting a few times, and I always hoped that I didn't get a deer. Because I didn't want to have to clean it. I'm a, I'm a pansy. I admit that. Don't like it. But, but we're so immune. We're, we're so immune to animal death. This is no big thing for us. But think about Adam for a minute. Think about him for just a moment. Adam was not immune to the taking of animal life because it had never happened before. Never. These animals, by the way, were his responsibility. Remember, he named them. I recently heard of a person who owns a cattle farm, and they name each of their cows before they send them off to slaughter. And I thought, I couldn't do that. That's so personal. There's no way I could. I just call them number one, two, and three, take them out of here and go. But you can't take Betsy down to the market and make steaks out of her. It just doesn't make sense to me. But he had named these animals. He had charge over them. They were his responsibility. And now, because of something he had done, one of them had to die. Now you get the point? You see the point God's making? Because you did this, Adam, something or somebody's going to have to suffer. Because of sin, one of those that he had charge over was now going to have to suffer. One of those that were under his protection now had... To suffer, to suffer, to make acceptable clothing for Adam and Eve. And that must have been devastating to Adam. It must have been devastating to him. But God's making a point. Sin brings with it death. It's not a good thing that we don't talk about sin anymore. A lot of ministries purposely avoid the topic as if they're doing the people a favor. It's no favor. It has to be mentioned when it comes up in the passage. Now, if that's all you ever preach, if that's all you're just beating people down with sin and don't preach grace, the fact that there's a way out of it, then that's a problem. But we can't just not mention sin as if it's not a problem. It is a problem. Sin brings with it death. This point, by the way, will be made over and over and over and over and over again in the bloody rituals of the Levitical offerings, which we learn from the book of Hebrews were a shadow of the reality that was to come in the death of Jesus, the seed of the woman. That's the death that's going to pay the penalty, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus, the lamb without spot and without blemish. The blood of Jesus being a pregnant verbal symbol reflecting all that was done on the cross to purchase our salvation, the entirety of the work of Christ on the cross. Christ paid the penalty that was due to us. Don't think of this, that Christ came to pay the penalty that's due to that person sitting a couple rows in front of you or a couple rows behind you that you really think needed the penalty paid. They paid your penalty. And he paid my penalty. If you won't admit that, I will. He paid the penalty that was due me. But he also paid yours as well. That's grace my friends. That's unmerited favor. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's all that God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
We don't deserve it. And somebody had to pay for it. That's grace, my friends. Now in verses 22 through 24, as we close out this so significant chapter, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. You remember, that was the whole thing. If they ate, they, they were not to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they had no need to experience good and evil in that way. But they did. The one of us is not, us, is not God and the angels, by the way. Some of your footnotes and some study Bibles might say that. That's, that's a, an oblique reference to the Trinity. I don't think we can prove the Trinity here in the first three chapters of Genesis. But the Trinity is there. We can see it, understanding further revelation. We can certainly see that's the us that's being spoken of here. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And there's a dash there in my Bible. There ought to be yours. It's kind of a broken sentence. You remember the tree of life was always mentioned earlier on with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, if they ate from the one, they sure better not eat from the other one. Because if they ate from the other one, then they're going to be permanently in that state. And while we might think it would have been good for them to stay in the Garden of Eden and to live on forever in this body of corruption, this body which is now dying, this body which is now dying, we think that would be better, but it would, be, it would not be. They, they, needed, they ended up needing to die someday so they could get their resurrection body. And that's grace, my friends, too. So God in grace expels them from the garden. Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. This was his job now. So he drove the man out. The woman's with him, by the way. He drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Now the cherubim, scripturally, these are angels. The cherubim are a special a special group of angels that appear, as, as they're mentioned in scriptures, in the scriptures, they appear to have the responsibility of guarding the holiness of God. If you go through and do a study of where you find the, the term cherubim, they tend to be in some way guarding the holiness of God. And that seems to be what they're doing here as well. They're, they're, they're functioning in that way. So Genesis 3 closes with a with God's very gracious and very reasoned, by the way, decision to prevent mankind from living an extended life in a painful state. An extended life in a painful state. The couple had eaten from the forbidden tree. Now it would be a further disaster for them to eat from the tree of life and then live forever in bodies that were corrupted by sin. That might sound strange to our ears. But God uses death to our ultimate benefit. Physical death is ultimately for our benefit. And again, I'm not in any way encouraging you to stop taking your medication or to leave the vitamins in the bottle or to quit exercising. I'm not doing that at all. It's God's choice when you leave this planet. And we need to be as healthy as we can, as healthy as we can, can do under the under medicine and nutrition and whatever form of health care you enjoy, as, until God takes us home. But it's his choice, and it's not positive for us to live forever in a body of corruption. Make no mistake, death came about as a result of sin. 
And death brings with it often unbearable pain. Not always. But often death brings with it unbearable pain. But God can use even the wrath of man to glorify himself. And he uses physical death to free redeemed mankind from the body of corruption. The body that is corrupted by sin. I, I, I do want to be specific about that. To free redeemed mankind. The death of the non-Christian is not a promotion. It's, in that sense, it's not a relief. It's just a, a step toward the consequences of rebellion. But for redeemed mankind, physical death is a promotion. And that's why I like that terminology when we do memorial services and funerals. That this person has received their promotion. It's a good thing. Lately I've had this own little metaphor in my own mind especially with people who have had lingering problems, that the Lord seems to take them home slowly. I first started thinking of that. This was my friend Ben Jacoby. I went to visit almost right about a year ago. This time is when our friend Ben went to be with the Lord, when he received his promotion. And I, and I got to thinking after I left him that day, I said, well, Ben's already been at the airport. He's already gone through security. He's on his way down to the gate, and he's sitting at the gate waiting for that plane to take off. It's just a matter of time before they call his flight, and, and he gets on it. And I don't, it's just something for me, that's not a scriptural designation, but sometimes I look at it that way. And people, sometimes people have already gone through customs or they've already gone through security. They're walking down the runway. Sometimes they're sitting in the seat on the, in the boarding area. Sometimes they're on the plane waiting for the plane to take off. We're all in one stage or another. We're all on our way to the airport, by the way. <laughs> no matter how old or young we are, we're all on the way to the airport. But, God is a marvelous God. He's not going to take any of us one second before we were ordained to be taken. And when he takes a believer home, it's a promotion. It's actually a wonderful thing. And, and there, won't be any, there won't be any reason to have anxiety over it. There's nothing to fear for the believer in death because it's a wonderful thing. God uses physical death to redeem mankind from the body of corruption. If it were not for physical death, we would never receive our resurrection bodies. And that's the body that we really want, isn't it, ultimately? That's the one that we really want. In that body, we will live forevermore, in a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, for when we get to that point, the old things will have passed away. And that's grace my friends. God's grace can take even the biggest negatives and turn it into a positive. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Father, we know that we have riches and glory in heavenly places, and we know that that, that is a reality because of the death that Christ died for us on the cross. We know that we didn't deserve it and that we know the price had to be paid for it, that you paid the price through the death of your son. Your son died for us, and we thank you for it. May we live in the days to come, in the weeks to come, months and even years, as though we truly believe that that's a reality and as though that we're truly grateful for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.